You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 48, part 11, and the final episode to my Gallipoli series. Yes, I finally reached the end of this series, and it's bittersweet. I'm ready to move on, but I'm also kind of bummed it's ending because it's been fun reading and learning more about the Dardanelles campaign as the time went by. It truly was a big hitter for the Great War. All things must come to an end at some point, though. For this episode, I'll be covering the British evacuation of Gallipoli. Well, at least I'll sort of get into it. But before I dive into that, as I like to do, let me update you on life. I keep repeating myself about getting episodes out in a better amount of time and that how busy I am, blah, blah, blah. Well, in the next few weeks, I'll be finishing up a course that's been taking up a good amount of my time, after which I'll be able to put more attention onto the podcast. I'm excited about that. I mean, goal for me, obviously, is to grow the listener base as I do recognize the rate at which I release episodes isn't really helping much. So hopefully I can get this back on track very soon. Um, another thing that I'm going to do, which I'm pretty sure most of you don't really care about, I need to update Less Studio. So when I first told my wife I was going to do a podcast, a World War I podcast, obviously her first reaction was, great, here we go. And where are you going to do this podcast? And I said, well, I'm going to take this little corner in our room and I'm going to just make it a micro-sized little podcast studio of mine. And I did. And at first it worked out well. But as time went by, less studio grew. <laughs> and what I mean by grew is there's things everywhere. So I looked to my left. I got an international building code. I got an international fire code. I got a California fire code, a couple more fire books, a couple engineering books. I got my cigar humidor now, this electric humidor, along with all my World War I books, my work computer, my personal computer, which I do podcast on. This thing is just morphed into a, just a disaster. It looks like a hurricane hit it. So, I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to get rid of anything that's not World War I. I want this, again, just to be my podcast studio where I do World War I. I want it to have my World War I books. I might put up a little bit of artwork about World War I, but I need to focus on that. I think it's when I sit down here, this is exactly what I'm doing, not all the rest of the stuff in my life. So I got that on my list. See uh, what else? I'm still plugging away at jujitsu. I can't give that up. I won't give that up. My shoulder is feeling a little better. However, it cracks now. I'm a side sleeper. I sleep with my arm under my pillow. And when I change sides from the bad shoulder, it will painfully and loudly crack. I know that's not good, but I mean, look, it is what it is. This shoulder has been bad since the military. Now, actually, probably before the military. I, yes, I injured this first in high school football. And I just kept re-injuring, re-injuring it and re-injuring it after that. It's popped out of socket on several occasions when I was younger. After I got out of the military, I would uh, fill in on my brother's flag football team. One time, just by throwing the football, I threw my arm out of socket it was out. I couldn't feel my arm. It was weird. And somehow it just, it popped back in. And I can tell you right now that didn't feel good, but uh, I've been dealing with this damn shoulder for years and I'm not going to go in for surgery. The hell with that. I'll live with what I got. I mean, crap. I've lived with it for this long. I'll snap, popple and crack until I drop. All right. What else do I got? Summer's here. Can you believe it? <laughs> I can't. I cannot believe we are in the summer of 2022 already. But beach weather is here, if you're near one. 
My wife and I take our bulldog child to the dog beach in Huntington Beach, California. He absolutely loves it. He goes nuts. Uh, we went a couple weeks ago, and after which we stopped by a brewery, and the weirdest thing happened. The waitress apparently was a big bulldog lover, so she kept coming over to us, giving our boy attention. Well, she ended up kneeling down <laughs> when we were leaving, and she gave him a kiss on the mouth, and I thought <laughs> that was really odd. At least to kiss somebody else's dog on the mouth, I'm like, great. Now I got to go wash his mouth and brush his teeth before I give him a smacker on the mouth. My wife didn't think it was weird, but what does she know? She also thinks I'm losing my mind. Who knows? In fact, no idea why I told you that story, but I did. Hey, but that place we went to, that brewery, has good drinks, though. And yes, we had a DD. We're responsible drinking parents. Our teenage son drove us now that he has a license. All right. Let me, since we're on the topic of drinking, let me tell you what I'm drinking. I was going to make an old-fashioned for the show, but I'm just, again, it's hot out. Wanted something cool. I'm in that tiki mode again. So I go to my always, and I don't know if it's so much a tiki drink. Maybe it is. It's a blue Hawaii. I don't care how fruity it is. It's pretty strong, it tastes good, and it feels good when it's hot out. Did I mention it tastes good? It tastes wonderful. And I'm holding this cup tight because I'm not going to drop it this time. So what is a Blue Hawaii? It is three quarters ounce vodka, three quarters ounce white rum, three quarters ounce sweet and sour mix, three quarter ounce blue curacao, and then three ounces of uh, pineapple juice. And you shake that up, put it over some ice, put it in a tiki glass if you got one like I do, and, and enjoy. All right. How about if I do some recapping from the last episode? So on the last episode, it's really simple. Three things happened that really, in my opinion, changed the course of the war. Three individuals visited Gallipoli. The first one, Keith Murdoch. He visited in September of 1915 for four days, after which he wrote a 25-page report and sent it off to his friend, the Australian Prime Minister, Andrew Fisher. And... To sum it up, he basically said, well, he didn't basically said, he said it was a national sacrifice at Gallipoli for the Australians. And I think this had a huge impact on Andrew Fisher because, again, a lot of people, they don't know what's really going on at the front lines of the war at Gallipoli. The next individual that visited Gallipoli was General Monroe on the 30th of October. And he visited all three sites. He went to Suvla, Anzac, and Hellas. And as he's walking these sites, he sees the destruction. He sees his men desperate, in despair, no motivation, looks in the battlefields. You know, he sees death and destruction everywhere. So he goes back and he reports to Kitchener the truth and he recommends a full evacuation. So this doesn't really sit well with Kitchener. So Kitchener will be the third individual to visit Gallipoli. He's got to now see for himself what the hell's going on. And he does. In fact, he arrived on the 3rd of November. Just like Monroe, he visited all three sites. And you'll have to imagine what Kitchener thought up to this point. Because I feel he was given a false narrative by Surrey and Hamilton. And I'll get into that later in this episode towards the end of my thoughts on Glippley and Hamilton. But Kitchener gets the real picture, just like Monroe. He's walking through the battlefields and he gets a firsthand account of what's really going on. He also sees the men in despair. I mean, they're pure desperation. He can see the line has gone nowhere. 
And as he's looking out into the battlefield, he's seeing the dead spread out everywhere. They're rotting. This isn't something they can hide. You know, they couldn't put on some dog and pony show just because some generals or some Lord Kitchener was showing up. No, they couldn't just say time out and say, hey, excuse me, Turks, but we have some uh, some big cheese coming through. Can we clean this up real quick and make it look like, you know, everything's all peachy here? It's not the way it worked. They got the first hand of view what was really happening. The dead and the rotted were still out there, and the men were in a really bad condition. So now, Kitchener is like, okay, I get it. I think we do need an evacuation. And he too agrees with the partial evacuation. However, Kitchener's intentions were to still hold on to Hellas, to support the Navy in ongoing supposed operations and another assault on the Straits. And I'll get into that in a little bit. And that brings us into the heart of this episode, the British getting the hell out of Dodge. Okay, so we're in the November time frame about now. The conditions prior to this were men suffering from thirst with the heat blazing down on them, along with the dead decaying, putrefying, stenching under that same heat tab with the massive swarms of flies. And of course, being under the constant threat of being killed. Well, November at the Dardanelles, the weather begins to change. As you could guess, the temperature drops. At first, this was welcoming to the soldiers. It cooled them off and did help with the swarms of flies. However, the welcoming didn't last long. You know, being cold sucks. Being miserable and cold really sucks. The season also brought high winds and rough seas, which at times made it impossible for the resupply boats to land. So, now the men are miserable cold, hungry, thirsty, and low on supplies. This bad weather and rough seas is important. You couldn't evacuate the men in these conditions, and the number of nights with good weather was expected to be minimal. The British window for evacuating was becoming a small one. Friday, November 26th was a bad day for the soldiers, and it gave them a glimpse into what they had to look forward to if they stayed during the winter months. The morning began with clouds and wind, and as the day went on, it got colder and the winds became stronger. The men looked onto the beach and could see rough surf beating on the makeshift pier and the ships and boats anchored at sea swaying around. If a soldier heard the rumor of an evacuation and looked out at sea during these conditions, I'd imagine this wouldn't exactly excite them. To make the situation worse, roughly around 1800 hours, it began to rain. Actually, it began to rain doesn't justify what the men described. They described it more as they got pissed on. When somebody says we got pissed on, it rained hard. Roofs of the dugout started leaking. Then the men were up to their knees in water in some areas. Next, the dugouts began to collapse. Not only was the direct hit of the rain doing damage, the flow of water from the higher ground was flowing right into their trenches. Some men began to panic. They didn't exactly have the luxury of calling a timeout, and if they showed themselves, they would be exposed to snipers. The trenches along the ridges weren't affected as much as the lower ground. Suvla was hit hard. In particular, the first Herefordshires might have gotten it the worst. A captain described it, saying the following. Suddenly, without warning, a brown flood poured in. The water rose as you watched until it was about three and a half feet deep and then stopped. As I didn't want to drown, I struggled out of the trench and met the CO emerging from the next door where the same thing had happened. It was quite obvious what had occurred. The very heavy rain, probably still heavier in the back hills, had suddenly transformed the dare into a river again. The water had poured down from the high ground behind the Turks till it had got caught up behind their barricade. This, presumably, had held until there was a re respectable weight of water behind it, when it collapsed and the whole tearing flood came rushing down at ours. 
It didn't gather or pause for a twinkling of an eye at ours. It simply swept it away as if it hadn't been there and swept it onto the sea. A solid river, 20 yards wide and eight or nine feet deep. All our trenches opened out of the dare, and though their flood level was higher than the bottom of the stream, they were still deep enough to take in about four feet of water. Captain Peter Ashton, 1st Herefordshire Regiment, 15th Brigade, 33rd Division. One of several causes for landslides is human disturbance. Since the amphibious invasions, both sides have been churning up the soil, taking big heaps of earth and flipping it upside down. It shouldn't have been any surprise that with hard rain, landslides were very probable, along with flooding in the trenches. Another thing the slides did was expose the men in gun positions. For the life of them, they couldn't afford to lose any machine guns to get swept out to sea or buried in the earth. That same captain from the Herefordshire Regiment rushed through waist-deep water to ensure his teams were still in place. And while he was rushing to get there, he made a good save. He heard something desperately snorting and sloshing in the rough water. It was a Turkish ammo mule. Captain Ashton ordered soldiers to get the mule out, then swore the animal into the British Army. Or at least for a short period of time. The rest of the day for the men was spent trying to get reorganized and back under protection. This meant consolidating many positions. They continued to get pissed on. The men just sat there with their backs to the muddy walls, with no other choice but to accept the misery. And November 26th was really just the start of the bad weather coming their way. Around 0200 hours on the 28th of November, a blistering cold wind caught the men by surprise. Temperatures dropped to freezing and snow began to appear. I've spoken about wind chill on previous episodes. Having snow with no wind, that's fine. Of course, if you have cold weather gear. But snow with a hard blowing wind chill is painful and dangerous. Windchill lowers the body temperature from colder passing by at speeds of above three miles per hour. That's why you feel it on the inside. It sucks. I've had multiple occasions being miserable with extreme windchill factors in the army, but honestly, my worst experience was in Chicago during a February snowstorm. And it was probably because I was drinking heavily, which thinned my blood. I think the windshield got to a negative 15 or 20. One night in particular, I was intoxicated from bar hopping. The wife and I began to walk to the hotel, which was, mm, let's say, less than a mile. But the cold just hit way too hard. I, I had to hail a taxi. Along the lines of this story, this Captain Peter Ashton recalled a tragic event during the evening of the 28th. He and his men were relieved from the front and brought back to the rear lines. They were expecting their food rations along with some rum. But what ended up happening was the men who brought up the rations arrived before the Herefordshires did. So they just dumped the rations by the side of a road. Come morning, groups of men began to search for the food and found the dumped goods. Problem was, they ignored the food and went straight for the booze. Many of the soldiers got pissed drunk. They took off their coats, boots, and tunics and continued to get sauced in the bushes. That morning, by the time they were found, many were frozen dead. He remembers one man with just his shirt and trousers on, still holding out his empty mug with a stiff arm, frozen in place. Another officer later wrote about his experience with the cold, saying the following. Lower and lower went the temperature. Every bone in my body ached with cold, and my hand wound became most painful. Sleeping in, and living in miserable dugouts under such circumstances has to be gone through to be appreciated and understood. Think what it was for the men in open trenches. Truly, one was learning the necessity of courage. The cold was just intense and I have never seen such courage as I saw through this blizzard. 
Men found at the parapet facing the Turk with glassy eyes and stone dead, who gave up their lives rather than give in. Imagine the death of slow, accepted torture. It is at such periods and at such periods only that one really does not seem afraid of death. Major Cecil Allenson, 1st of 6th Gurkha Rifles, 29th Indian Brigade. Another officer wrote, It took us about an hour to make sure that each man had a rifle and to get them out onto drier land. When I returned along the trench, which was still unfit to stay in, I found six men had crawled back and were huddled together on a firing step, frozen to death. We then found about 20 men lying by a hedge with ground sheets over them, more or less frozen stiff. We got them up, after a lot of groaning and complaining, and made them hop around in a circle to restore their circulations. Second Lieutenant Philip Gething, 9th Royal Warwickshire Regiment, 39th Brigade, 13th Division. Keep in mind, the majority of the men are still wearing their summer kit. Officers and NCOs had to get creative to try and keep their men alive. Some had no choice but to build a fire. It was a matter of life or death. And when I first read about this, I, I, I had to think about this. They talk about building a fire to stay alive. Well, I'm thinking you have the two opposing trenches and in some cases, these trenches are only, we're talking yards apart. Each side knows the other one's there. You know, in a modern military, the point of not building a fire is noise and light discipline. However, going back to the Great War, Gallipoli in particular, we're talking about now, I think the noise and light discipline can go out the window. Again, they know you're there. I don't understand why they didn't build the fires earlier. Some describe desperately rubbing their feet to prevent frostbite and bullets buzzing over their heads, but they didn't care who was firing at them. Misery had taken its toll on many at this point. The 9th Corps at Suvla was getting hit bad. The snow had blanketed the ground. The trenches were also in waist deep of water. Medics were dealing with over 5,000 men suffering from frostbite and hypothermia. The hospital ship HMHS Rea only had about 214 cots for the extreme conditions. Around 600 were boarding as casualties from the cold. A medical officer on board described it saying, The majority could only just crawl up the ladder. Dozens tried, failed, and had to be carried. They came on, mouths open, gasping, faces bluish, gray eyes glazed. Many of those who could stumble had to be led, as they just walked automatically, their clothes frozen stiff. I shall never forget this experience. We got them all below into cots, filled them up with hot soups and bovril, and piled blankets onto them. Heaps had badly frostbitten feet, which, as they warmed up, gave them great pain. We had frostbite in all stages, I was going until midnight wrapping up feet in cotton wool. Lieutenant Commander Surgeon Albert Bilbertson, HMHS Rea. Uh, if you guys don't know what bovril is, bovril is a thick and salty meat sort of paste or extract. It was invented under the orders of Napoleon around 1870 after the French were defeated by the Prussians. The cause of this defeat was said to be from lack of rations. So the little guy ordered the meat paste to be created. The salty beef paste can be spread onto a loaf of your choice or made into a brothy drink. Apparently, the famous explorer Ernest Shackleton was a fan of it too. Anyways, aside from beef extract, frostbite, if you're not familiar how gruesome it can be, it can get quite gruesome. I'm not going to post pictures of frostbite up on my social media account, but if you have the stomach for it, you can Google frostbite or World War One frostbite and have yourself a little looky-loo. I'm making chicken tikka masala tonight, so I'm going to skip looking that up right now. I already know what will come up. 
You know, this whole time, I've been painting a grim picture of what the British were enduring during this period. This doesn't mean the Turks were having a grand old time. They, too, were feeling it. December rolled in, and the British had a big problem that required a quick decision to be made. The first winter storm did pass, and the weather settled. However, they realized more storms would come, and they could be more intense. If they set a date for the evacuation, and they got caught in one of these storms, it could be catastrophic for the men. But let's not count out the greatest threat to them, still. And that's the Turks. When Bulgaria entered the war in October, this gave Germany and Austria little room to wiggle around. This allowed them to move more munitions and heavy guns down to Gallipoli. So not only are the Turks still stacked with manpower, now they're getting stacked with heavy guns that make loud booms. General Lehman von Sanders couldn't be more pleased with the arrival of the Austrian 24 and 15 centimeter mortars and howitzers in November. He believed the shells they were using up to now just weren't producing the punch it was intended for. Now with this, he believed these could be the guns to bring an end to this campaign. He was right in one way. These were big ass guns and they could produce major damage. A British officer recalled saying, They sent over quite a number of HE shells and, unusually for them, all busted and that with terrific violence. I think it was some new toy they've acquired via Bulgaria. Well, only one shell really hit anything that mattered and that was a bay next to our dugout occupied by nine of my men. With the exception of three, they were all literally blown to pieces and unrecognizable. I've never seen such an awful shambles as that bay presented. All were dead, the first glimpse being a headless trunk. We buried three we could recognize, five trunks and a bag of spared limbs. Captain Thomas Watson, 6th East Lancashire Regiment, 38th Brigade, 13th Division. These big guns could destroy bunkers and buildings. Dropping them on humans, just as the captain described, was catastrophic. These shells were dropping everywhere along Anzac and Suvla. Major Cecil Allenson, who, quote, who I quoted earlier about the bitter cold, was seriously wounded by one of these shells on December 3rd. He later recalled his ordeal, saying the following, I was standing not far from my dugout giving notes to orderlies. When there was a terrific roar, the world seemed to come on top of me. And the next vivid memory I have, though temporarily deprived of my sight, was the communion on the hospital ship, Gloucestershire Castle. I asked someone in the next bay if I was dying, as I had been given the last sacrament. But he told me to be of good cheer, as he had also been given it, and he was only suffering from jaundice. Major Cecil Allenson. First of six Gurkha rifles. The Dardanelles campaign was over for Allenson. Back in London, politicians were still weighing their political objectives regarding an evacuation and what effects it could have. Even Kitchener put himself back on the fence for where he stood on the matter. One item that wasn't helping was the Royal Navy still pondering the idea of making another assault onto the Straits. London which includes Kitchener, believed that Salonika would quickly fall and that all those troops could be brought over to Gallipoli to again support the Navy. However, when Monroe, Bing, and Birdwood were asked to again provide their opinion on the matter, all three were highly in favor of an evacuation. On the 4th of December, France held a meeting and determined Salonika wasn't going to be won overnight and it was too important to not send soldiers there. It must be defended, and they would gladly leave Gallipoli and move their troops, which they had already begun the process. There's a few factors that led to the British final decision. I believe Keith Murdoch's letter to the Australian Prime Minister, Andrew Fisher, had a big impact along with Monroe visiting Hellas and Zach and Suvla, then providing his report. Salonika 
was the next hot item on the block, and the British couldn't part ways on the matter with the French. The decision was stamped on December 8th to evacuate Suvla and Anzac. Hellas would remain to support the Navy, who was preventing U-boat movement along the Straits. The final evacuation date was set for December 19th. There was two obstacles facing them. One, they couldn't be seen. If they did this during the day and were seen by the Turks, they would be ripped to pieces. The Turks have all positions covered along the beach with big guns. Suvla alone would be exposed. Number two, they have winter storms coming and they can't evacuate during one. Many men would be lost. Timing with good weather will play a key factor. It was estimated that around 83,000 troops and 186 guns, and who knows how much provisions along with munitions had to be evacuated. Plans were drawn up, first being a fighting withdrawal which was tossed in the garbage. The final plan based on deception called for concealing the evacuation until the very last moment. And boom, you got your plan. The week before the final evacuation, the units at Anzac and Suvla would be thinned down to the bare minimum at the front. As if they weren't already at the bare minimum, but we're talking down to the bones bare minimum. During the last two nights, the reserve and support units will be evacuated. And on the very last night, the remaining units will be thinned out in stages before the final parties holding the line will be pulled back covered by rear guards. One of the elements of deceiving the Turks was to go silent the days leading up to the final withdrawal. This way the Turks get used to the silence, yet believe they're still there. At first, as planned, the Turks were thrown off by the silence. Suspicious, they sent out patrols. Turks would approach cautiously, then jump into the trench, which appeared to be empty. Moving along with no enemy in sight, they believed they left. Then, with a shocking surprise, Soldiers appeared, driving them out of their trenches or driving their bayonets through them. When men from the patrols didn't return, or some retreated, they reported the British were still there and nothing had changed. The silent deception was a success. During this period, one thing became clear to the British and Anzac soldiers occupying the trenches. They realized an evacuation was really happening and it sparked a range of emotions. Naturally, you think most would be ecstatic they were leaving the place that quickly turned into hell for them. And in a way, they were happy to be leaving, but other emotions seemed to weigh heavier on them. For one, their dead pals were still littered across the battlefield, and now they were going to abandon them. And in some cases, they were more than pals. They were often siblings or, or cousins. The Great War recruited from towns which encouraged them to join up together and serve together. Imagine your brother or your pal is rotting in the open and the remaining army were about to evacuate. It was weighing heavy on them. I think some people will say that in the end, it, it doesn't matter because they're dead. And I get that. I guess you're not wrong. They're not going to miraculously get up and say, thank you for saving me. No, their time on earth has passed. But to leave your fallen comrade, your pal, your chum, your brother, it just isn't right. This brought some sad emotions. So the, some of the men live with this for many years to come. Everyone who fell deserved a proper burial, a final resting place to honor their sacrifice. And it did come. I don't know exactly when the first memorial and cemetery was established, but I would guess it was sometime in the 20s. So when the men realized they would be evacuating soon, immediately they became overwhelmed with this feeling of grief or guilt. And how do you really, you know, heal that? You can't, at least for the time being. You know, hopefully some of these veterans got a chance to revisit Gallipoli years after the war 
to see the memorials and cemeteries. Hopefully this brought some sort of closure if that was even possible. Another emotion that seemed to be weighing heavy on them was the fact that they weren't going home. They were going to another front. They knew this was coming. And the fact of how their commanders and politicians used them for this campaign didn't give them a good feeling how they'd be used for the next one. Would they go to Salonika or the Western Front? Did it really matter? What makes one front different from the other when your chances of dying are just the same? Through the last week, night by night, the numbers of men on the lines were reducing quickly. Some estimated the total number of troops in the 70,000s. Others, including some historians, estimated over 80,000. But the men couldn't take everything with them. Food, for instance, they had to sabotage a lot of stockpile at the depots. Tin cans of meat, the men would poke tiny holes at the bottom in hopes if the Turks found and ate it, the meat would have rotted and put the troops out of commission for a time. Men in the trenches were setting up booby traps through the days and nights. Trench dugouts were set to explode after they were abandoned. Whatever they could do to make a last impression on the Turks as if they were giving them the finger right to their face, this was their way of saying goodbye. Ammunition and bombs they couldn't carry were buried. The evacuation of Suvla actually went well for the men. Tension was high, but the Turks still had no idea what was taking place. At 0400 hours on the 20th of December, the last of the men said their farewell. The majority of the tension and where they knew if any problems could arise was at Anzac, mainly because some of the frontline trenches between the enemy were just yards away. Sticking to the plan, keeping the attention to detail, would be the key to a successful evacuation at Anzac. Officers were briefed and knew exactly what to do and how it would go down. Another thing they did was lay down a series of mines ready to detonate. To give you an idea of how big these mines were, at Russell's top, two mines were placed with over 1,500 pounds of ammonal. A tunnel dug right underneath the Turkish lines by Australian sappers was packed with two tons of high explosives. The mines were set to go off two hours after the remaining had left. This was rigged by using a sandbag suspended by a string with a candle. After the makeshift fuse, the string was to burn down, the sandbag would fall on the exploders and the mines would detonate. Some of the men got really crafty. A corporal rigged his rifle to continue shooting after abandoned. He wrote about it, saying the following. It occurred to me that if we could leave our rifles firing, we might get away more surely. The sand of the hourglass was the first germ of the idea. If the sand could be made to trickle from above into a container attached to the trigger, the increased weight would finally release it. Next day I started on the idea, but it wouldn't work. The sand wouldn't run and the trigger wanted a jerk to pull it. The jerk was easily got over by the cartridge box full of dirt, but water was the only thing that I could think of to replace the sand. Lance Corporal William Scurry, 7th Victoria Battalion, 2nd Brigade, 1st Division, AIF. Scurry's plan for using dripping water into tins, which in turn would topple over the cartridge case and pull the trigger, finally worked and was approved. He spent the last two days explaining this to hundreds of Anzacs along the front. Just like Suvla, the Anzacs evacuation was also a success. As the last of them sailed off from Anzac, you'll have to imagine the thoughts running through their head, the emotions, what they had endured, what they had left behind, how many were sacrificed, what exactly they had fought for. As they were sailing away, Navy ships poured shells into the abandoned depots, creating huge fireballs in the sky. Mission accomplished. Anzac and Suvla had been evacuated with no casualties. The Turks were slow to react, mainly because they were still unsure if they were still there or if they had evacuated. A colonel from the 5th Army stated the following. 
The alarm was sent to all the divisions. The reserves brought close up and orders issued to immediately send out strong officer patrols to approach the enemy trenches to establish whether they were occupied and report forthwith any evacuation by signal. Colonel Hans Koningaisa, HQ, 5th Army. When the dust settled and the Turks realized they were gone, they began to ransack what was left behind. Lehman von Sanders wrote about it, saying the following. Immense stores of all kinds were abandoned by the British on their withdrawal. Between Suvla Bay and Ari Bernou, five small steamers and more than 60 boats were abandoned on the beach. We found large quantities of material for dummy rail lines, telephones, and obstacles, piles of tolls of all kinds, medicine chests, medical supplies, and water filters. A great mass of artillery and infantry ammunition had been abandoned, and whole lines of carriages and caissons, hand arms of all kinds, boxes of hand grenades and machine gun barrels. Many stacks of conserves, flour, food, and mountains of wood were found. The tent camps had been left standing and sacrificed. This probably served better than anything else to mask the withdrawal. Several hundred horses, which could not be embarked, were killed and lay in long rows. General Otto Lehman von Sanders, 5th Army. The British claimed they had destroyed the majority of their supplies and equipment, but I mean, in reality, the timing of the evacuation, it was an impossible task for them to destroy almost everything. What they did to the horses doesn't sit good though. Why did they have to go kill the horses? You know, if this was really true, this should be considered casualties for the evacuation. Now, what about Hellas? There were still roughly around 42,000 troops there made up from the 42nd Division and the R&D. After being evacuated from Suvla, the 13th Division was to replace the 42nd. In all fairness, the 42nd had been on the ground longer. They deserved a break. But the Turks? They were now able to take a good amount of resources from Suvla and Anzac and bring them down to Hellas, including the new guns from Germany and Austria. The Turks knew they had it won and that eventually the British would also leave Hellas. They just didn't know when. Lieutenant General Sir William Robertson was appointed to, to the position of Chief of the Imperial General Staff and it was he who pushed for the final evacuation of Hellas. He wrote about it saying the following. But after all, the main question was, what useful purpose would be serving by keeping a detachment at Hellas now that the troops had been withdrawn from Anzac and Suvla? Clearly there was none. And to continue hanging on to the place merely because we were afraid to leave it was not only a waste of men, but would be a constant source of anxiety. On the 28th of December, five days after becoming CIGS, I placed before the War Committee a memorandum drafted for me by Caldwell, who was acquainted with my views, advocating the immediate and total evacuation of the peninsula. Lord Kitchener supported the recommendation, evacuation was approved, the necessary orders were dispatched the same day. General Sir William Robertson, Imperial General Staff. By this time, Monroe and Birdwood were already planning the rapid evacuation. The 8th of January was the planned date for the final evac. On January 7th, Lehman von Sanders became suspicious. This shouldn't be a shocker. Monroe and Birdwood were again using the silence period to try and fool them. You can't fool somebody like Sanders twice. The Turks on the, on the Asiatic side already reported seeing the withdrawal of guns. He ordered the 12th Division to attack the extreme right with the heaviest of pre-bombardments. The shelling began at noon and lasted until 1600 hours when two mines detonated, followed by the Turks going over the top. The British holding the lines used their skills with rapid fire and held back the Turks. And on the day of this attack, 
only 19,000 British soldiers remained. The one thing the Turks did have in favor and what could have defeated them is if they would have massed their troops onto Hellas and renewed an assault. This could have overran the British. And the Brits feared this. At V&W Beach on January 8th, as the remaining were being pulled back, the Navy was told to keep their fire heavy. Into the early morning hours, the last were pulled out. For the most part, aside from the naval fire and bad weather approaching fast, the Turks remained rather silent during those last hours of the evacuation. And that's really it. The last man to leave Hellas is reported to have been Lieutenant Ronald Langton Jones of the Royal Navy. I didn't focus too much time on the actual evacuation for a couple reasons. One, compared to all the disasters since April 25th, 1915, the evacuations actually worked as planned. And two, there's a book about the evacuations I'll be mentioning shortly, which covers everything. I wanted to focus more on the extreme cold they suffered through in the end and the emotions they dealt with after realizing they were evacuating. There's so many different reports what the actual death toll might have been, along with the estimated number of casualties for this campaign. Obviously, we're talking in the hundreds of thousands. Right from the start, of the April 25th landings, men were dropping like flies. Every battle turned out catastrophic numbers for both sides. It really was appalling considering nothing was gained. Hearing the numbers of casualties and deaths after each battle is upsetting when reading about Gallipoli. But one of the most upsetting moments for me was when Monroe and Kitchener toured the peninsula and returned in complete shock. Keith Murdoch calling Gallipoli a national sacrifice. You know, this affected a lot of people back then. What upsets me is how Sir Ian Hamilton couldn't come up with the same conclusion. It was happening in front of his face the whole time. How did that group of men see death and destruction? Yet Hamilton see all he saw was the need to continue sending men to their deaths for an outcome that wasn't possible. I think about this and I wonder if a mind like Hamilton's doesn't work the same. How do some people have such little regard for human life? Did he really not care about soldiers dying? Or did he really feel he was making gains and that winning the campaign would be a huge achievement to the British objective in this war? Well, I think it was both. I believe he thought the reward for a victory would not only be beneficial for the British military and for the war committee, but also a monumental win for his personal gains. And I think he would have continued sending troops to their deaths to achieve this because he had no regard for them. If he couldn't see what Monroe and Kitchener seen, he was completely oblivious to the death toll. And I also feel Churchill was exactly the same as Hamilton. If he hadn't been sacked from his position and was allowed to do the things his way, he would have been alongside Hamilton and wouldn't have stopped either. The Dardanelles campaign was a failure for the British at Gallipoli, but the soldiers are not at fault. The failure solely lies on the incompetent senior leadership along with politicians who were basically baboons in suits. The soldiers put up tremendous fights even when outnumbered. Even when thrown into suicidal assaults, many times they managed to overcome the enemy. Just no ground was gained. They're the heroes who made the ultimate sacrifice who we should always honor and remember. Unfortunately for the British and Anzac soldiers who made it through Gallipoli, the war wasn't through with them. Folks, this was a great series. I love reading about Gallipoli. Every episode I did, I learned something new. I didn't think it would take this long, but hey, who's in a hurry? 
I've read a few books on this campaign by now. I've read diaries, memoirs, to the full history. But by far the best book, in my opinion, on Gallipoli is by the author Peter Hart titled Gallipoli. His book has been the main study for me, and trust me when I say there's much more in the book. If you like this series and you like reading about history, I highly recommend you grab a copy of his book. He also wrote another book called The Gallipoli Evacuation, which covers the whole entirety of the evacuation. Peter Hart was a historian at the Imperial War Museum for 39 years, and during this time he interviewed countless veterans about their their experiences. He's the author of many books and has appeared on several history documentaries. Again, his Gallipoli book is absolutely brilliant. The research that had to have gone into this must have been a tremendous amount. This Gallipoli series has increased my fanboy status of the Great War. Before this, I preferred mainly the Western Front, but now I'll continue to go back and read more stories from Gallipoli. It made its impact on me, as I hope it did for you. I would love to visit Gallipoli and see the sights one day. It's been added to my bucket list. God only knows if I'll have time, but it is on my list for sure. I want to thank you all for your support for the show and for the series. There's still more to come for 1915 as I begin to close it out and then move into 1916. Uh, If I haven't mentioned this before, I'm on Instagram at OTTGW podcast, Twitter. What is my, actually, what is my Twitter? Oh yeah, it's the same Uh, at OTTGW podcast. That's easy to remember. And Facebook, you can find me at Over the Top, A Great War Podcast. You can also email the show at OTTGWpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, all episodes are on my website, www.OTTGWpodcast.com, along with many other podcast platforms. All right, folks, wishing you all the best. Until the next episode. Take care, everyone.